1: And today we're going to talk about Mosiah 11 through 17. There's a lot in here. If you're looking for milk, this is not the podcast to listen to. This is as meaty as the Book of
0: Mormon is going to get. This is heavy, wonderful doctrine, and yet relevant insights
1: into each one of our lives. And Mike and I are super excited to jump into it. Bryce, why don't you take us through maybe a brief overview of what's happening here, we are not going to go chronologically through each one of these chapters. We're going to talk big picture and then dive into some cool stuff that maybe you wouldn't get in another podcast. So let's take us back to where we've been. Mike and I have done several
0: podcasts on the book of Mosiah. We did an overview of Mosiah, and I'm, I don't want to be repetitive for those of you who listen to that, but those who have not, I want to give you at least a little bit of information as to what we're going to dive in today. At the heart and soul of the book of Mosiah is this concept of being Noah blind. Now, I remind you that the Savior taught several parables in his lifetime. He taught the parable of the sower. That was a big one. And then he followed the parable of the sower with the parable of the wheat and the tares. And that parable made it into the Doctrine and Covenants, section 86. That's significant, that Jesus would repeat the parable of the wheat and the tares in the Doctrine and Covenants. Now, then one of the main points of that parable is that we can't tell the difference between wheat and tares until the very end. We are growing up in an environment where you can't tell the difference between very healthy wheat and poisonous Darnell grass that could kill you. So as I see it, there's four possibilities. You can look at someone and say, you're wheat, and they actually are wheat, so you got it right. Even though you can't quite know for sure, you got it right. Or you could look at someone and say, that's a tear, and they were a tear. You again got it right. So see wheat, and they are wheat. See tear, and they are tear. But the other two are dangerous. What if we think we're seeing wheat, and we invite them into our life and say, you influence my life. You have something to do in my life because I think you're wheat, but in reality, you're a tear. That's dangerous because we've let a tear into our life that's going to poison us. Or the other negative is I look and say, oh, you're a tear. I don't want to have anything to do with you, and we cast them out of our life when in fact that they were really wheat, and we did not include that influence in their life. So Noah blindness is about those last two possibilities. It's growing up in an environment where you can't tell the difference between the friends and the foes, wheat and tares. And the two major mistakes we make are we see wheat and think it's tare, or we see tear and think it's wheat. And that's the story of Noah and Abinadi and his people. Noah blindness is when you can't tell the difference between friend and foe. So a very brief summary of chapter 11, this is what Noah's doing to his people. He's taking their women. He's living a riotous life. They're working super hard. He's taxing them so that he can live a lazy life. And so the question I would ask is, in what world is a man like that your friend? How is this a good leader? But look at the very last verse of chapter 11, the the people are blind, And they look at Noah and they see friend. Now, maybe there's a reason why. If you go back to verse 2, he did cause his people to commit sin. Maybe that's one of the reasons we get confused and people who allow us to sin, we see as friend instead of foe. How about verse 7? They were deceived by the vain and flattering words of the king. That sometimes turns a Noah into a friend because they're, they they flatter us and they make us feel like we're more than we are. And so because of their vain and flattering words, we become Noah blind and we see friend instead of foe. Or how about verse 12? He built a tower near the temple. Now you build a tower to put a watchman on it to keep guard so that you know when the enemy's coming. In other words, he made them feel safe. And one very common tactic, one very common reason people get confused and see wheat when it's really terror see friend when it's really a foe, is because they make them feel safe. They make them feel loved and appreciated. So these people look at Noah and they see friend. And then chapter, later on in chapter 11, along comes a prophet who was sent to save them from their sins. Their sins are going to lead them into major challenges, and a prophet is sent to preve- prevent that. So Abinadi comes among them, meaning the people who are Noah blind. And he starts to say things that you don't expect a, quote, friend to say. Look at the end of verse 20. Except they repent, except you repent, I will visit them in mine anger. This is what the Lord says to Abinadi. Verse 21, I will deliver them into the hands of their enemies. They'll be brought into bondage, be afflicted by the hand of their enemies. And sometimes when prophets speak truth like that, we look at them and say, you're no friend of mine. Sometimes children look at parents and say, you're the worst mom in the world. And then blinders go on, and instead of seeing someone that really does love them, they see, they see an enemy. And so they're looking at a wheat, and they see tear. They're looking at a friend, and they see foe. And so this is a Noah blind people. They look at Noah, and they see friend. They look at Abinadi, and they see foe. Now, unfortunately, for chapter 12, Noah comes back, or Abinadi comes back and says some harsh things. I'll visit you in my anger, verse 2. This is chapter 12, verse 2. You'll be brought into bondage. You'll be smitten on the cheek. You'll be driven by men. You'll be slain. You'll have your flesh devoured. He talks about sore afflictions and famine and pestilence. And all the day long you'll howl. In other words, here are the consequences of your sins. That's what prophets do, is they tell us the consequences of our sins, but the people didn't like that. So notice verse 9, it came to pass that they, meaning the people, these aren't the priests, these aren't the guard, this is the normal people, the people that Abinadi came to save. They were angry with him. The blinders are on and they look at Abinadi and they see foe. And they took him and carried him bound before the king. And when they get there, verse 13, here's a very, very classic conversation and a very common phrase. Verse 13, O king, what great evil hast thou done? Do you see the blinders? They're being taxed so that this guy can be a drunkard, lazy bum off of their money, and they say, what great evil hast thou done? What sins have thy people committed? That we should be, notice this is a common phrase, here's the J word, Noah blind people will frequently say, you are judging. And they'll look at the Abinadi's and say, don't judge me. Verse 14, we are guiltless and thou king has not sinned. This man has lied. Do you see what Noah blindness is? That's kind of a brief summary. Noah blindness is when you mistake friend from foe. We see it all over the world. We see it in the church. It's a teenager who looks at mom and dad and says, you're not my friend and then he has friends who are allowing him to sin and do things that are wrong and they look he looks at those friends and he sees he sees a real friend when they're really not a friend mom and dad become an enemy and their other friends who are leading them up off off the path become true friends see that's Noah blindness sometimes Noah blindness is drugs and alcohol sometimes it's an ideology sometimes it's people it's those things that we think are our friends when in fact they are not. So today's question is, how do you help a Noah blind people? Abinadi has the task of helping a Noah blind people take the blinders off. Now, in many regards, he's not very successful, but in one regard, he is very successful. As far as the history of the Book of Mormon goes, he takes the blinders off one individual who becomes a key member of the story of the rest of this book, and so it works. No, or Abinadi's message gets the blinders off of Alma. So the question on the table is, how do you take Noah blinders off? What do you do with a Noah blind child? What do you do with a Noah blind friend? What do you do when someone you love is being pulled into drugs and alcohol and thinks that drug and alcohol are their friends and that you are their enemy? How do you help a Noah blind son or a child or a friend? And in your studies of, of uh, Mosiah 12 through 17, I would make, I would make sure that you watch for that. As you read Abinadi's message, ask yourself the question, how does Abinadi get the blinders off of Alma? And let me just give you a brief summary. Number one, he rehearses the law and he teaches who Jesus is. But Abinadi is going to teach a very different Jesus than Benjamin taught. Benjamin's purpose was to teach the greatness of God and the nothingness of man. Abinadi's purpose is to teach a Jesus that understands, a compassionate soul who has suffered for our sins, who knows what we go through
1: and longs to help us and heal us. Right, I might put this out there too. One of the ways you can teach the law as a parent is if your children are raised, you don't really need to talk about it much. You just live it. I think as parents, if we just live what we say, then we're teaching the law. And then we also teach who Jesus is by being like him. Being compassionate and and understanding. Right. So I think sometimes that alleviates a lot of the confrontation. If as parents of adults, if we just live the law... And be like Jesus, I think we're being like a Benedite. Does that work for you? Yeah, I think the whole point here is Abinedai made sure that they understood the basics of
0: the law. What are the tenets of our religion? Do you understand the basic requirements of the law? And do you understand the kindness and the gentleness of Jesus in forgiving us when we make mistakes and pulling us back? That is a Benedict's message. So as you read, watch for how does Abinadi help Noah take those blinders off? Now, that's our summary of what we've been doing. What we'd like to do now is dive into some of the smaller messages about a prophet being cross-examined by a hostile group. There are some wonderful doctrines in here, If you'd like to know more about that overview of Noah Blindness, we refer you back to our podcast on the overview of Mosiah. But what we'd like to do now is dive into some of the smaller messages that come out of Abinadi's teachings with the priests and Alma and their effect. So, Mike, why don't you take one, and then I'll take one, and
1: we'll just kind of go back and forth. Yeah, okay. So I want to start with some of the best stuff first, and also what I think to many could be some of the most confusing passages in perhaps the whole Book of Mormon, and that's going to be the first eight verses of Mosiah 15. And this is where Abinadi talks about how Jesus is both the Father and the Son. Now, There's many different ways to read a Abinadi, but one way to read his name, Ab Ben Nadi, Ab is father, Ben is son, Nadi can, can be messenger. One way to read his name is that he is the messenger of the father and the son. And so I want to talk a little bit about these verses because I really like how Bryce said you want to reveal who Jesus is. Sometimes this can be really confusing because of using already established religious language to teach new gospel principles. So let me give you an example. To readers of the Book of Mormon, especially in the 19th century, there was this issue with what was called Trinitarianism, or this idea of the Father, Son, Holy Ghost being either the same substance or the same person, and there's a lot of different ways to draw that out. And so sometimes the early critics of the Book of Mormon said things like, this is too Trinitarian, but that's not a benedized message. And so if we use already established understanding of Scripture and then we try to unlock it, sometimes our language can kind of get in the way. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read these eight verses, but I'm going to add in uh, some commentary as to who is being talked about here. And so before I even start, I do want to talk about pre-apostate Jewish apostasy, pre-586 B.C. religion, and here it is. It's polytheistic. You have a high God, El Elyon, the most high God, We refer to him in the church as Elohim or Heavenly Father. You have a son deity, the son of El Elyon, and that's Yahweh or Jehovah. We refer to him as Jehovah typically in the church. And then the Holy Ghost isn't really played out really well in the Old Testament. Um, In the Old Testament, prior to the Jewish apostasy, you also have this consort, Asherah. I'm not going to talk about Asherah today. If you want to get an Asherah, go back and do our first Nephi 8 and 11 podcast and you can get into some of that stuff. But the distinction I want to draw here is that Abinadi is not necessarily talking about the Most High God, El Elyon or Elohim. He's talking about Jesus and his dual nature. And so we're going to call the spirit essence of Jesus as Jehovah or Yahweh, and we're going to talk about his flesh, his person when he was a mortal, Jesus. And so I'm going to read these passages in that light to just know that Abinadi understands who God is. He understands who the Father is and the Son, And in these verses, he's talking about the dual nature of Jesus. Now, before Mike does that, let me take you back to Mosiah
0: chapter 5, verse 7. When we make covenants in the church, Jesus really does become our Father. So it's very common in the church to refer to Christ as Father and Son. But we're going to specifically jump and say every time he mentions Father here, it's Jesus as Father— And Son is Jesus as Son, and the struggle
1: within Christ, which is going to be a symbolism of the struggle in all of us. Yes, and it's going to be multivalent. This is going to be Abinadi talking about Jesus, but Abinadi is teaching us more than just this. So here we go. Verse 1 of Mosiah 15. And now Abinadi said unto them, I would that you should understand that God himself should come down among the children of men and shall redeem his people. In this essence, he's talking about Jehovah. God himself shall come down and redeem his people. Verse 2. And because he, Jehovah, the spirit, pre earth, godlike nature of Jesus, because he, Jehovah, dwelleth in the flesh, he, Jehovah, shall be called the Son of God, Jesus, having subjected the flesh, Jesus, to the will of the Father, Jehovah, being the Father, Jehovah, and the Son, Jesus. The Father, Jehovah, because he, first as Jehovah and then again as Jesus, was conceived by the power of God. Now, in that instance, I'm going to say Elohim or Heavenly Father. He's conceived by the power of the Father. And the Son, Jesus, because of the flesh, thus becoming the Father, and the Son, becoming Jehovah and Jesus. So this is Abenadi and I talking about the composite nature of Jesus. He's spirit and he's flesh. Before he was born physically, he was God. He was Jehovah, and as flesh, he is Jesus. Some would call him Yeshua. He's both. He's a composite being, and the, the interesting thing is so are we. We are composite beings. In the case of Christ, he
0: literally was the Son of God, the Father, and the Son of Mary. So he is dual beings. Now, how much Mary he had, how much God he had, we don't really know how that played out, but this is about that struggle between Jesus, Son of Mary, and Jehovah, Son of God the Father. And that that unlocks Mosiah 15. As you can understand, he's talking about the struggle between being Jesus of Mary, the mortal side, and being the Son of God, the Eternal Father— the divine side he is both father
1: and son at both. the same time yeah he's both and they jehovah jesus there it is they the dual nature are one god yea the very eternal father of heaven and earth and thus the flesh jesus becomes subject to the spirit jehovah or the son jesus to the father jehovah being one god jehovah and jesus Suffereth temptation, and yieldeth not to the temptation, but suffereth himself, Jesus, the flesh, to be mocked, scourged, cast out, and disowned by his people. And after all this, after having worked many mighty miracles among the children of men, he, Jesus, shall be led, yea, even as Isaiah said, as a sheep before the shearer is dumb, so he, Jesus, open not his mouth. Yea, even so he, Jesus, shall be led, crucified, and slain, the flesh, Jesus, becoming subject unto death the will of the Son, Jesus, being swallowed up in the will of the Father, Jehovah. And then verse 8, And thus God breaketh the bands of death, having gained the victory over death, giving the Son power to make intercession for the children of men. Now, there's a lot happening here. But one of the things that Benediah is doing is talking about Jesus' life and the struggle that he's going to have. Is Jesus the man going to be in charge and remain with his friends and not die? Or is Jesus the man, the, the human being going to submit his flesh to the will of the Spirit, the Jehovah of the pre-earth councils that made covenants with us, that we were so sure we exercise our mighty faith in him and we knew that he would do what he said he would do? So taking you back to the Garden of Gethsemane, I guess it's forward to the Garden
0: of Gethsemane where he's kneeling down and you see that struggle. Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. He had power to remove the cup. He could have played that card and said, take this cup away, and yet he submitted to the cup and he drank it. It's that submission of the Son to the Father that brought about the atonement. Jesus within him submitting to Jehovah within him, or the flesh within him submitting to the divine within him. And that's what is trying to teach these wicked priests of Noah. That's how Jesus brought about the atonement. He could very well have said, take this cup away, Father. I don't want to drink it. He could have exercised that omnipotent power for his own self, but he submitted himself to the will of the higher power, the divine. You see that whole concept, and now all of a sudden you begin to see the universal nature of what Abinadi is trying to teach these priests who have clearly not
1: submitted the flesh to the higher power within them. And what really makes this pop is this is really a dialogue within a dialogue. Because Bryce is right, he's talking to the priests, but I submit to you, the listener, that he's talking to Alma, and that Alma's having this wrestle. I bet if we were there, if we could be a fly on the wall and watch this— Abinadi is looking right in Alma's eyes and he's watching this inner struggle that Alma's having, where Alma's like, Okay, wait a minute. He's not just talking about Jesus, he's talking about me. And so now Alma, who sits on the king's council, has to decide who he is. Is he the Alma who sat in the council with the father and the son in the pre earth life? Is he that Alma? Or is he just this Alma who sits on the king's council? Today, the wicked King Noah, which Alma is he going to be? And that is another level of this text, that it's an invitation to Alma, who are you going to be? And I might add to you, the listener, the most important question, who are you?
0: It's fascinating where he goes, where he came from. Notice that Mosiah chapter 14 is a a, a chunk of Isaiah talking about the submission of the son to the father. And I love the idea of being a lamb before the slaughter. I have four little boys, and I have a six-year-old son, and haircut time is not a good day in the Dunford house because there was a time when haircuts were a disaster because my little boys did not want their hair cut. And they would fight and push and, no, I don't want to do this, and the haircut ended up being messy because they wouldn't just sit still. But then as they grew up and they understood that this is a temporary inconvenience, and eventually this is going to be something that I want to happen. They are silent before the shears because they've learned to trust the one shearing them and that this is for my benefit. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Chapter 14 goes right in hand in hand with these first few verses of chapter 15. And every single one of us have to decide, does the flesh yield to the spirit Or does the spirit yield to the flesh? That's exactly what Abinadi is teaching, and that's how you get the Noah blinders off. Does the flesh yield to the spirit? Or does the spirit yield to the flesh? Because Jesus is being heralded as the man who yielded to his flesh, yielded to his spirit. Jesus yielded to Jehovah, And so the question on all of our tables, I can just picture Abinadi looking me in the eye, looking each one of you in the eye and saying, which one are you? Are you the flesh that's going to dominate your spirit? Are you Alma, the wicked priest of Noah? Or are you Alma, the gentle servant leader that he's going to become, that we're going to see in the latter chapters of Mosiah? Jesus chose that aspect. Jesus chose to be submissive to the will of the Father. What are you going to choose? That is the heart and soul of a Benedice message, and you can't miss that. All of this talk about Jesus is to help us understand it is a submitting Christ. It is a, I'm going to be burdened. If you'll go back to chapter 14, look at all the words here despised, rejected, man of sorrow, acquainted with grief, borne our grief, sorrowed or carried our sorrows, wounded for our transgression, bruised for our iniquities. That's a submissive Savior. That's a yielding Savior who yielded the flesh to the Spirit. And because of it, end of verse 5, we can be healed. Our stripes can be healed. With His stripes, we are healed. Beautiful message, Mike. That's awesome. Okay, now I'm going to take one. So Mike talked about the father and the son as taught by Abinadi. I want to go back a few chapters to chapter 12 and 13 and watch the priests of Noah try to take down a prophet. Because you live in a world, you and I live in a world where people are trying to discredit prophets all the time. If you are active on social media, if you watch the news, you'll find a lot of people after general conference or anytime the church makes a decision will try and take down the prophet, discredit the prophet. And recognizing their techniques, I think, is very valuable. Knowing how they do it. So Mosiah chapter 12, verse 17, they hold a council to see what they should do with him. So just imagine, General Conference has just concluded, and here comes all of the antis trying to discredit a prophet. What do they do? Technique number one, verse 19, they began to question him that they might cross him, that thereby they might have wherewith to accuse him. In other words, they spend the whole time listening to General Conference looking for one thing that they can twist and use against a prophet.
1: We need a handhold. Something to grasp. Yep. But by the way, Jesus was a master at not giving them a handhold, yep. wasn't he? Yeah.
0: But they'll take something that a prophet said and completely... To, now, so you and I will read the talk or listen to the talk and say, oh my goodness, his talk was not at all about that. That's not at all what he was talking about. But they will take that one statement and they will just harp on it. And they'll say, see, he hates, he's full of prejudice, he's racist. So be careful when they look for something wherewith to accuse him. You need to go back and hear the whole message. What was the message that prophet gave? Not just look for one little thing that goes us wherewith we can accuse him. Second technique is in verse 20. They will rest the Scriptures. They will take the Scriptures and they will twist them. In this case, they quote the Old Testament and say, hey, what means that Scripture, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who publishes good tiding and publishes peace? In other words, Abinadi, you are not saying nice things to us, so you are not a prophet because the Scriptures say that prophets publish peace. In other words, they're taking a Scripture and twisting it and be careful Watch for that. Watch for the twisting of the Word of God, because they'll take, clearly, I was publishing peace. If you repent, peace will come into your life, but they're twisting it. So be careful of those who quote the Scriptures to discredit a prophet.
1: Not only was he publishing peace, his way was the only way. If they didn't do it his way, they were going to get...
0: Yeah, let's talk to Limhi and see about that peace that comes into their life, right? yeah. yeah. Okay, then verse 28, you quote a prophet against a prophet. We teach the law of Moses. So you're not a prophet because Moses is our prophet. And you'll find a very common technique among people trying to destroy the faith of members of the church is to take some previous comment from a prophet that seems to discredit a current prophet, and they want to show that there's not harmony between prophets. So they'll quote a prophet to discredit a prophet— but what they're doing is they're taking those quotations out of context.
1: Or, so, or, or you could say maybe sometimes we get more light and knowledge. So a classic example, Bryce, is Moses' cosmology and understanding the universe is certainly not ours. But Moses was a man in a time and place, and God's not going to go Carl Sagan on Moses and explain you know, dark matter and quarks. He's going to talk to Moses in his language, exactly. right? So it kind of goes both ways, doesn't it? It's like holding
0: a prophet, today's prophet to yesterday's standards. Right. And that's not fair. And then the last one, when all else fails, in chapter 13, verse 1, they say, well, he's mad. He's just insane. Now, notice this one's tech. This one's clever, because if I can discredit the person, I've discredited his message. If I can say, so-and-so's racist, then I can throw out everything so-and-so said, because that racist label eliminates his argument. And that's a very, very you got to be really careful with that one, because people will say— For example, a prophet is old and out of touch. Therefore, nothing he says is relevant. Or a thousand other ways, they'll just discredit the person. It's like in medieval times, the joker could say anything he wanted to the king, and it wouldn't be offensive because he's just the joker, right? He's insane. And so no one takes him seriously. And so watch out for an attack on the individual Because if they can discredit the individual, they can discredit the message. If Russell Nelson is in fact a racist, then everything he says is off the table because of
1: what he said. You know one of those labels I see, Bryce? It's kind of funny. Somebody will say something really wise and then to discredit them, someone on social media will say, okay, boomer. Right, As if to say, because you're a baby boomer, you don't have anything to you're add to the argument.
0: Right? Yep. You got it. That's, an exact, that's a great example. Your age
1: makes your message irrelevant. And then it goes the other way, too, when an older person says, oh, whatever, millennial, and then they say, because of your age group, you don't matter. And we're back to that whole concept of pride, aren't we?
0: You got it. So watch out for those who listen to a prophet simply to find something to attack and accuse— Watch out for those who twist the scriptures to say that a prophet is not inspired or divine. Watch for those who will use a previous or another prophet against a prophet. And then watch for them that they attack the individual, say things about the person to discredit his message. But that's a subtle, that's a subtle thing I wanted to point out is how they will go about trying to discredit a prophet.
1: And it's happening today. Okay, Mike, back to you. Okay, okay. so yep. I want to talk a little bit about Touch Me Not. So that's going to be chapter 13. So if you go to chapter 13, this is where right after Bryce talked about how they say he's mad. In verse 3, it says, Touch me not, for God shall smite you if you lay your hands upon me, for I have not delivered the message which, which the Lord sent me to deliver. Abinadi is authenticating his prophetic authority. He is saying to Noah, I stood in the council and I'm challenging your right to rule. And you do not have the right to rule because you have broken the fundamental rule of being a king, which is your covenants to Yahweh. You've broken those, and because you've broken those, you don't have any authority. He's going right to the root of King Noah's authority, and for this reason, Noah wants to kill him. Now, this takes a little bit of a setup. So here it is. The king, every fall, would be enthroned. In first Israelite temple religion. And the notion was that the king was a due representative of God, that he represented the grand council in the heavens, that El Yon and Yahweh ratified his, his throne, his kingship. He wore the robes of kingship. He had a crown. He had a scepter. He had records. A lot of these things are going to be carried on through the narrative of the Book of Mormon and the authors just kind of talk about it like, hey, this is what's going on, right? They have the sword, they have the the records, um, they have a temple. And so my assumption here is that Noah had a temple, that he's wearing all the robes of kingship, and that he represents the God of the heavens, or at least in his mind he does, he thinks he does. And so in the festal drama in First Israelite Temple religion, which is replete all over the place, this is replete throughout the Book of Mormon, in the fall, there would be a drama, and the drama would be played out where God chooses the king and then the king would be enthroned, and Yahweh would anoint him, and then the king would represent Yahweh to the people. The king in the festival drama would make covenants to Yahweh, he and his wife, and then they would turn to the audience, and the audience would be told by a representative of Yahweh, as the king and queen have made covenants and are bound to Yahweh, so you are. And the king, as he goes, so goes the nation. And so, this idea of the king being righteous is integral to Abenadai's message. And what Abenadai is going to do here is invoke the, the festal drama. He's going to invoke the idea from the council to challenge King Noah and his right to rule. I'm going to talk about how the father in the festal drama would give the message to the son, Yahweh, to then deliver to the king or the prophet. Now, there's a to set this up as well, there's a couple more things you need to know. In Abraham 3, Elohim makes the covenant, but Jehovah makes the assignments. In 1 Nephi chapter 1, when Lehi sees the father on the throne, he receives his assignment from Yahweh or Jehovah. If you read 1 Nephi 1, 9-11, It's Jehovah who gives the assignment. In Isaiah 6, when Isaiah receives his message, the question is asked, who shall go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And it's Jehovah who gives him the assignment. And if you think about the first vision, it's the father who introduces the son, and then the son gives the assignment to Joseph Smith. Another reference for you would be Jeremiah 23, 18 through 22. And in that text, Jeremiah says, how do you know if it's a prophet and they've been called by God? They've stood in the council. And so that is the, the language that I want to refer you to as we go through touch me not in Mosiah 13. So with those introductory verses, here we go. Verse three, touch me not for God shall smite you if you lay your hands upon me. I'm going to read, we don't have the plate text here, but I'm going to read God as Elohim. Elohim shall smite you if you lay your hands upon me, for I have not delivered the message which the Lord Jehovah sent me to deliver. Neither have I told you that which you requested that I should tell. Therefore God, Elohim, will not suffer that I shall be destroyed at this time. But I must fulfill the commandment which God the Father has commanded me. And because I have told you the truth, you're angry with me. And again, because I have spoken the word of God, the father Elohim, ye have judged me that I am mad. So what's happening here? There's a couple things. I think one of them is that Abinadi is showing a crystal clear understanding of the Godhead. He's showing that he is representing the father, but it's the message that he's to deliver from the son, from Jehovah. I also think that Noah and his priests understand this as well. They understand because they have the festal drama every year. They repeat this drama where the father tells the son to go down to earth and to anoint the king, and the king represents the people to God. I think that Abinadi is also distinguishing the roles that these individuals are playing in the festal drama. To unpack this, you need to read Psalm 45, 25, and 82. I'm going to refer you to some show notes that will kind of articulate these ideas. And the final thing is, Abenadi is authenticating his prophetic authority. He is saying to Noah, I stood in the council, and I'm challenging your right to rule. And you do not have the right to rule because you have broken the fundamental rule of being a king, which is your covenants to Yahweh. You've broken those. And because you've broken those, you don't have any authority. He's going right to the root of King Noah's authority. And for this reason, Noah wants to kill him. And it's all couched in the historical understanding of temple and how they viewed God and how they viewed kings. The, the king's theoretical claim to his authority rested on the belief that he was chosen in the pre-earth council, that he was God's son that he was a son of God. This is Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. When the king was enthroned, he would be called God's son. His continued authority rested on this claim. And the claim was that his decisions represented the decisions of God in the council, in the council of the gods, in the council of El Elyon. So now Abenadi is challenging these claims by asserting his own covenant that he is made with God and the specific instructions that he has from Jehovah. And so that's what I read when I read Touch Me Not. There's a lot happening here because to you, the listener, some of this may sound familiar to you. Some of this may sound familiar to understand this idea that there's a God in heaven and a Son, and the Son of God, Jehovah, gives instructions to a king or to a prophet, and a prophet is one who has stood in the council. And so that is what Abinadi is invoking, and he's challenging Noah. Let me just say this about the commandments. He talks about the commandments, and i this is this is not in the text, but I think this is what 's going on. I think he 's pointing to King Noah, and it says in here that he reads the commandments to him i don 't think King Noah handed him a copy of the commandments. Um, I think what 's going on is King Noah, and there 's some scholarship on this that the king would wear the embroidered commandments as part of his regalia as part of his outfit when he sat on the throne, I think what Abinadi is doing is he's pointing to that that embroidery on his garment and he's pointing to him and say, you, Noah, have violated the fundamental rule of being a king. And the commandments that you're wearing, you don't even know what they say. So now I'm going to teach you what they are. Now, I would not recommend this to you as a parent. If you have a, a child who's Noah blind, I would not recommend you go this route. Sometimes the scriptures use extreme examples to really power home a point, but I think that that's what Abinadi is doing, and he's saying, Noah, you've broken the fundamental rule of being a king. But there is, I think,
0: something that parents can take from this. I think there is a a bigger picture here, and that is when the rules are written on the outside of our children and not the inside of the children, they're going to be Noah blind. They're going to forget the greatness of God. And so, let me take you back to when when Abinadi first starts rebuking the priest, when he first opens his mouth in chapter 12, he says in verse 27, you have not applied your hearts to understanding. I'm going to read that phrase again. You have not applied your hearts to understanding. That's an interesting concept, and may I suggest that we as parents need to teach our children in such a way that their understanding doesn't sit on the surface, that it goes down into the heart. And then in chapter 13, he'll say that very thing. So imagine Noah, who's wearing the Ten Commandments. If he really is wearing Law of Moses paraphernalia, if he's really dressed up like we assume he was, he's wearing the commandments on him. But they're certainly not in his heart. And no, and Abinadi points that out, chapter 13, verse 11. I read unto you the remainder of the commandments of God, for I perceive that they are not written in your hearts. And so I think there's, there's a disconnect quite often when we teach our children and even in the church that we get the surface, but we don't get it to the heart. And I would invite everyone to rethink how you teach as a parent, how you teach. Those of you who are teachers in the gospel, is your teaching floating on the surface of your students, or is it getting to the heart? Because the way to get the blinders off is to get the law into their heart. Now, Jesus is going to have a major part to play in that, but is the law written in your heart? And I think we can talk about That, you know, maybe this approach is a little extreme, but there's something for all parents to think about. And that is, have I taught my children in such a way that it's in their heads, but it's not in their heart? And how do I teach my children? How do I live the law so that my children understand that the law is written in their hearts? It's, it's very different for a child to say, who's tempted to say, smoke a cigarette and they say, no, I can't do that, my church won't let me, versus I don't want to, I choose not to. One kind of has the law written on the surface, and one has the law written in their heart. So make sure that when we learn, we apply to understanding. I, I, I love this quotation from Neil I. Maxwell. He once said, Laman and Lemuel also displayed little lasting spiritual curiosity, Once true, they asked straightforward questions about the meaning of a vision of the tree, the river, the rod of iron. Yet their questions were really more like trying to connect doctrinal dots rather than connecting themselves with God and His purposes for them. When you teach in your home, do you connect doctrinal dots, or do you connect yourself and your children and your family to God? That's the difference. When Abinadi says, you have not applied to understanding, they clearly have had religious discussions, but they've never connected themselves to God. Don't connect doctrinal dots. Connect yourself to God. Every venture in gospel learning, every time we study the scriptures, every time we go to the temple, every time we go to church, We should connect ourselves to God and his purposes for us rather than getting caught up in connecting doctrinal dots.
1: That's good. All right, Mike, back to you. So we got to sink these things into our hearts. And I think Noah had all the looks, the trappings of somebody who was doing first Israelite kingship. He had a group of priests, he had the law in front of him. Clearly, these guys had Isaiah, they had the scriptures uh they're asking questions about it they're not asking to understand but they're asking to accuse i remember for years i really struggled with that uh text that they read to uh benadai in chapter 12 where it says in verse 20 it came to pass one of them said unto him what meaneth the words which are written and which have been taught by our father saying how beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings that publisheth peace that bringeth good tidings of good that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, thy God reigneth. I remember for the longest time, I was like, why are they asking him about Isaiah? Now I get the part about not understanding Isaiah. Like I was at home with that idea. I was like, I totally get that. But why are they asking him about Isaiah 52? And I don't know if you remember this, Bryce. It was a long time ago. We were just talking about this. And I remember asking you that question. You said, well, yeah, they're just trying to accuse him. You're not publishing peace. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's it. And I was just kind of okay with that. And that's a good answer. I think really they're using Scripture to undercut a prophet and to accuse him of, well, you're not publishing peace. Clearly you're not a prophet. But then then you get this verse, verse 22. "Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice. With the voice together shall they sing. For they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. Break forth into joy, sing together you waste places of Jerusalem. And then it goes on. There's more. And the context of this is Isaiah 52. And so I want to take you, the listener, with me to Isaiah 52 to kind of look at this. And I'm going to start off with a couple things that I'm just going to say as presuppositions. And what I'm going to suppose going into this is that there's levels to this. and Abinadi is going to, once again, invoke the council, this sowed experience. He's going to invoke it in such a way as to teach them about who they are, but also about who Jesus is, and that Jesus later in Third Nephi is going to play on these same things. Jesus is going to quote some of Isaiah 52 in Third Nephi. So there are a lot of different ways to look at Isaiah 52. I'm going to give you three interpretations here. First level, Noah, you're not doing it. Second level, it's all about Jesus. Third level, it's an invitation for us. So know that the phrase, the king's feet or having the feet established, that has to do with kingship. When the Savior came to the Nephites, I, I believe this, that he sat upon his throne and his feet would have been established upon a footstool and his kingship and priesthood would have been represented by the sacred objects in that footstool. You would have had the plates and you would have had the sword of Laban. You would have had the Leahona. These were the things that the kings took with them. These, and Noah probably had something like this. To have the king's feet established has to do with authority and who's in charge. And so there's three levels here that I want to approach uh, this passage with in Mosiah 12, 21 through 23. And once again, he's quoting Isaiah 52. So if you look in Isaiah 52, verse 7, it says, How beautiful upon the mountains, temple, are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings. Well, this is the king that publishes peace. Well, why does he publish peace? He publishes the commandments. He represents the council the sowed of God that bringeth good tidings of good that publisheth salvation that saith unto Zion, thy God reigneth. Noah is supposed to be the representative of Yahweh on earth. And Abinadi says, no. And so we've talked about the challenge that he issues to him. You've got the commandments embroidered on your clothing. You're wearing the robes of the priesthood, but you don't represent him. Now this is all rooted in the 45th Psalm. And so on one level, this is, a Benedict. I say, no, Noah, you're not the king. But what I really want to talk about is the second level to this, and that's the kingship of Jehovah. And so notice what it says. Go to Psalm 2, verse 6. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill Zion, and I will declare the decree. The Lord has said, thou art my son, and this day I have begotten thee. This is the message that Jesus is the king. He is the one that represents the father. Now, in, in Israel, the king would become God's son. But this is literally, in this instance, this is Abenadi issuing a decree to Noah that Jesus is king. Let's do section 93 of the Doctrine and Covenants, verse 8. Therefore, in the beginning, the word was, for he was the word, even the messenger of salvation. So Jesus is the word. He is the one that publishes peace. The light and the redeemer of the world, the spirit of truth, who came into the world because the world was made by him and in him was the life of men and the light of men. The world were made by him men were made by him and all things were made by him and through him and of him. And so the king's feet being established to me, and I think the most important to Abinadi is the importance that it's God who's in charge. We need to submit ourselves to his reign and his rule and acknowledge his greatness. And in this instance, Noah is a usurper. He is taking away that right because instead of being the king, He's being a usurper. He's breaking the very commands that he's wearing. And so this is Jesus on the throne with his footstool established. A third interpretation is this, that it's about sacral kingship, about each of us, about each worthy woman and man, every person. And it's about our ability to become sacral kings and queens unto the Most High God. And so this is first Israelite temple religion I'm going to talk about here with Isaiah 52. So here it is. We have verse 7, the feet have been established, we're publishing peace. But then notice Isaiah 52, verse 8, right after this. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice, with the voice together shall they sing. For they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. In the first Israelite temple in an early Christianity, the saints would circle around and sing. They would sing around an altar and they would have one voice and they would see eye to eye. Now, when you see eye to eye, one of the ways you can envision this is you, you're looking at the person across from you. What's interesting to me is this is actually happening in the very first part of 1 Nephi. In 1 Nephi 1 1, Nephi gives us a clue that he's going to talk about this. Notice what it says. He says, I've had a great knowledge of the goodness and the mysteries of God. Mysterion, that's Greek. It's the equivalent of the Hebrew word for sowed. Sowed is the council. Nephi right out of the gate in First Nephi says, I know the sowed. I know the festal drama. Let me give it to you. I'm going to give it to you in code. And so in 1 Nephi chapter 1, this is what he says. He says he sees. This is Lehi seeing God sitting on His throne in verse eight. But then notice what it says: surrounded with numberless concourses of angels, concourses, circles, circles of angels. And what are they doing? They're in the attitude of singing and praising God. So this is Lehi in the very first like eight verses of the Book of Mormon. He's in the heavens. He's having a sowed experience. He sees the Father. He sees angels seeing eye to eye in a circle, singing and praising God. And so now we're back to Isaiah 52. The watchmen are going to lift up their voice. Together they shall sing. They shall see eye to eye. I'm submitting to you that they're in a circle. When this happens, they'll bring forth Zion. That's Isaiah 52, verse 8. Before that verse 8, if you look in verse 1 and 2 of Isaiah 52, this is how we bring Fourth Zion, this is how we establish sackle kingship. Look what it says. Verse one, we awake, Isaiah 52, one, we put on beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. Verse 2, we shake ourselves from the dust, we arise and we sit down. This is in the first Israelite temple drama, the people would arise and they would make covenants. It's in the king's narrative where covenants are made in a standing setting. And then they sit down after they've made the covenant. So now they're clothed and they've made a covenant and they're sitting down. And then they see eye to eye in verse eight. Now go to verse nine. Break forth into joy, sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. We'll get into the meaning of comfort when we get into Mosiah 18, but for now that has to do with sacral kingship. So when we become kings and queens, according to the first Israelite temple, part of it is we make covenants and then notice verse 10. Isaiah first 10, in my opinion, is exactly what it says. And it means what it says. The Lord will make bare his holy arm and the eyes of the nations. And I would submit the nations that have made those covenants. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of God. Verse 11, the invitation go ye out from the midst of her be clean that bear the vessels of the lord what will my servant do verse 13 he shall deal prudently be exalted extolled and be very high that that's language for a king so on the three levels back to rewind where we've been this question they ask about those that publish peace first level Noah, you're not doing it second level it's all about jesus third level it's an invitation for us Do we want to bring forth Zion? I would submit to you that Isaiah 52 is very much early Christianity and first Israelite temple religion about making and keeping covenants, standing up, arise, sitting down, and having God's arm revealed so that we can, verse 11, be clean and deal prudently. I just think that's so important. And I also want to throw this out there. I don't see Joseph Smith making these connections as a 23-year-old kid. Do you, Bryce? No way. No
0: way. So the effect, whatever else happened, the effect of this little exchange between Abinadi and the priests had two outcomes. Number one, the priests, most of them, still saw Abinadi as foe. Nothing changed. In fact, they seem to be even more convinced that he's foe, and, and Noah is their friend. So the blinders are still on. But one young man took the blinders off. Whatever Abinadi said, whatever he did... It got Alma to take his Noah blinders off, and he saw Noah for who he really was, and he saw Abinadi, and he will write down those words of Abinadi, and he will cherish them, and he will teach them to his friends, his children for the rest of his life, because he finally saw who his real friend was. So may we conclude just with the summary, the antidote to Noah blindness is to get the law written into our hearts. That's what abinadi does first. He gets the law. He tries to get the law written into their hearts. And then the other antidote is to understand the role Jesus plays in our life. And one of those is an example of yielding the flesh to the Spirit. The Son becomes subject to the Father. And that needs to happen in every one of our lives. Think about the courage it took for Alma to stand up to Noah. He knew exactly what was going to happen. There's no way Noah's going to sit idly by and just take that. He just had to have anticipated that Noah was going to come after him. But he was willing, he was willing to go through that because he was submitting the flesh to the Spirit, which is exactly what Jesus did, which is why he's our Redeemer and our Savior. And it's something we all of us have to do. We will only take our Noah blinders off as we yield the flesh, the desires of the flesh, this world we live in, all the parts of being a high priest to King Noah. If we give that up, if we walk away from that to be one with God, to be unified with His Spirit, that kind of ties it back into Benjamin's narrows. And that comes back to Benjamin. It's just that same idea, the greatness of God and the nothingness of man. One thing that Alma came to know is that Noah was nothing and that God was great. Why else would he be willing to run for his life? He could have lived it up in the palace, but he was willing to run for his life because he realized that the flesh is not worth the fruit thereof. It's the Spirit. And therein, I would suggest, is the antidote for Noah Blindness. Get the law written into your heart. Follow Jesus. Let Jesus teach you how to yield the flesh to the Spirit, how
1: to yield the Son to the Father in your own life. And with that, we will see you next time when we get into Alma in the wilderness, teaching about the covenant of baptism. Yeah. Thanks for listening.